Tammy. Luke chapter 16, if you've got a Bible. Luke 16. Just going to go ahead and tell you up front, sometimes you hear the saying that, that people will say that uh, churches just don't preach on hell enough anymore these days. If you ever thought that, you're going to get your wish today. Uh, going to be in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. Uh, we've been looking at the, at the parables of Jesus, and today we're going to come to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And um, as I've been studying through these parables, uh, what I've noticed is that, that through several of them, there is this common theme, and that common theme is the coming judgment. You think about the parable of the wheat and the tares, the one where the wheat grows up and the weeds grow up with it, and the wheat is saved, but the weeds are burned you think about the parable of the, of the net where the, the fishing net is thrown out and the fish are pulled in and the good fish are, are kept and the bad fish are thrown out to die. And, and you see it, even if it's not the main point of a parable, you see it as a side point to some parables like in the parable of the talents where you have the three men who were given certain amounts of money to invest and there was that third man who wasted that talent and what happened to him? It said he was cast out. There was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so today we come to, to Luke 16, which is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And, and we can kind of debate whether or not this is really a parable. Uh, some believe that this wasn't really a parable. They believe that it was actually a true story, that Jesus was telling a true story of something that he had witnessed and only he could have witnessed as the Son of God. And, and there's some reasons for that. Number one, it's the only parable where Jesus names a person, Lazarus. Only parable where someone has a proper name. It's also a little different than the other parables because in, in all the other parables, things represent other things. Wheat represents the saved. Weeds represent the lost, things like that. And in here, there's really no symbolism. What is said is what is meant. But I include it here today just simply because of the story nature of it because Jesus is telling a story with a spiritual point. And so I want us to set the scene. Let's go in verse 19 and let's start there. We'll read down through 22. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And so Jesus tells us here the story of two men from two absolute opposite ends of the spectrum. You have a rich man, a poor man. One who is covered in the finest of clothes, the nicest of garments, purple and fine linens, we're told. The other, we're just simply told, is covered in sores. One who lived in, within the safe confines of a fence and a gate in a, in, a, in a fine home, and the other who was crippled and who was placed at the gate to beg. One who was likely surrounded by high-class friends who reminded him of how wealthy and how successful he was. The other whose only companions were stray dogs who licked his wounds, likely not to comfort him, but simply awaiting his death so that they could have a meal. One man who enjoyed fine dining day in and day out. One man who simply begged for crumbs. One who died and was given a proper burial. And one who, we're told, simply died. And whose body, as a beggar, was probably thrown out and who became long forgotten. 
Well, Jesus uses this situation, I believe, to teach us some hard but necessary truths about the afterlife. Let's pick it up in verse 23. We're told that the rich man who died, he was buried. And in verse 23, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. First truth I want us to see is simply this, that heaven and hell are very much real. Jesus gives us a complete role reversal here. We see a rich man who we discover was absolutely absolutely spiritually bankrupt. But then we see a poor man, Lazarus, who turns out to inherit the infinite riches of heaven. It's like a rags to riches story. Right alongside a riches to rags story. We're told that Lazarus here dies and he was carried by the angels to a place called Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. It's just another way of saying that he was one of God's true children, one of Abraham's descendants, one of the true descendants by faith. And so it's telling us here that Lazarus went to the peace and the prosperity and the plenty of heaven. No longer having to beg at a rich man's gate, he sat within the rich heavenly father's kingdom. And Jesus' point is this, it's that heaven is real. It really is the place that we're told of in John 14, the place that it's, that's been prepared specifically for us to be our eternal place of rest. It really is the paradise that Jesus called it to that thief that was on the cross next to him in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. It really is that place of, of paradise. It really is that place where we will see him face to face and he personally will wipe away our tears and he personally will remove our pain like we're told in Revelation 21.4. Yes, heaven is real. It's not simply a dream. It is real and it is glorious. And as his children, we have the confidence of knowing that one day we will live for all eternity under God's care in heaven. Never to experience pain or death, or sorrow, or hunger, or hurt, or any of those things again. What a promise. But you know, just as heaven is real, Jesus is making the point here that hell is real. He told us here that the rich man died and was carried to a place called Hades. It's a Greek word for what we would consider hell. We're told here that he was tormented by the flames. But what is hell really like? It's been something that people have debated over the ages. Um, some, if you, if you look, listen to popular culture, popular music, sometimes it may be portrayed like it's some kind of never-ending party, which it is def- most definitely not. Some would even doubt the existence of hell. They'll say that it's just something that was created to scare people into doing good. The Pope The Catholic Pope, Pope Francis, was recently quoted by someone as saying that he's not even really sure that hell exists. Believes instead that maybe, just maybe, that when someone dies who is lost, they just cease to exist. Other groups, Christian and non-Christian, have struggled over that, that debate as well. Some debate, are the flames real? Are they figurative? But regardless of what our feelings might be, regardless of what our opinions might be, regardless of how comfortable we might be with the idea of hell, our opinions don't really amount to much. What amounts to anything is what God says and what His Word says. 
And the Bible teaches us that hell does exist. So that covers it. You know, I was watching TV. It's been years ago. I remember flipping through the channels one day. And uh, any of y'all ever used to watch that Antiques Roadshow thing? I don't ever watch it, but I happened to, to stop on this one, one time. And there was this lady on there. And she had this big old, like, look like a cooking pot. And she said she had got it at an antique sale or something like this. And she brought it in there. You know, everybody goes on that show thinking that they're going to, like, strike it rich. They're going to find out that they're just wealthy beyond their imagination. This thing that they have is just worth millions of dollars, and they're hoping all this kind of stuff. So she comes in here, and she says, you know, I, I found this pot, and, uh, you know, I just it's all ornate and all this kind of stuff, and I know it's got to be worth something. You know, I use it in my kitchen. We cook our meals in it, you know, I, I pasta and things like that in it. And she lays it up on the table, and she says, you know, what is it? And the guy looks at it, and he says, hmm, you know, um, this is actually a, uh, from the 1800s, this is actually a bedside pot. bedside toilet and here she was cooking her meals in it you know our opinions don't mount too much what we think about it doesn't really matter what matters is the fact of what God says the reality of what God teaches and if you don't like that well I just got to say this I don't write the mail I just deliver it and it's simply what the word of God says now we know from scripture that hell is a place of punishment Matthew 25 talks about it being eternal fire It talks about in Matthew 13 about it being a fiery furnace. Here in Luke, we find the only passage in Scripture that describes the thoughts and the words and emotions of someone who was actually in hell. And how did that person in hell describe it? Absolute agony, pain, torture, torment. But you know what else we can know about hell? It is a place full of people who will be absolutely shocked to be there. People who will absolutely be flabbergasted to find themselves there. You know, one of our major TV networks here recently did a poll of people asking them if they believed in heaven and hell. And if they did believe, where did they think they would go? And 82% of people believed that they were going to heaven. And you know, everybody thinks they're going to heaven. Everybody thinks that's where they're headed. But the Bible tells a little different story. If you look in Matthew chapter 7, you read how Jesus describes that there's a, there's, a, there's a narrow gate, a narrow path, and few will find it that leads to everlasting life. But then he says there's a broad path, and many will find it. And that path leads to destruction and hell. Now, we better understand this, what, what sent this man to hell? What was it that sent this rich man to hell? Well, I can tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't his riches. Now, I could, I could preach a sermon here today on how we, should, how we should treat the poor, because I think there's a lesson here, but I'll save that for another day. But when we look at Scripture, God warns against riches, but he never gives a blanket con- condemnation of the rich. He never tells us that all rich people are going to hell. But he also, at the same time, never says that all poor people are going to heaven. You see, it wasn't Lazarus' poverty that got him into heaven. And just because someone is poor doesn't mean they're going there. You know, we take groups down to Calvary Rescue Mission quite often to minister to the men who stay there. Um, it's a homeless shelter for men, and there'll usually be anywhere from 20 to 35 guys that are staying there. And, and we've been going for probably six, seven, maybe even eight years And so along the way, we've kind of gotten to know some guys there. And I've met plenty of guys there who are at absolute rock bottom when you think about this life. But man, they love Jesus. They love the Lord. They realize they can't do it on their own, and they love Jesus. 
But you know what? I've met a lot of other guys there that don't care anything about the Lord. They just want a bed and a meal. And we continually pray for them. But I say it to say that, that it's not our outward, outward state that determines where we're going. It's our inward heart. You know, we don't read anything in this story that tells us about the details of Lazarus' life. In fact, the only clue we have is his name. And his name means this, the one God helps. And I think Jesus gives us that name, if, whether this is fictitious or real story, I think Jesus is giving us that name to point to the path to heaven. Faith and trust in the God who helps. Faith and trust in the one God who has reached out to us to offer us eternal life. And what sent that rich man to hell was a disregard for God's word. We see it in his life. We'll see it in some of his comments later um, as we come to our next point. Our next point I want to make is this, is that eternity is really and truly eternal. Look in verse 24. It says, he called out. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, and this is what I want us to hear, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. None may cross from there to us. The truth that I think we have to wrestle with here is this, is that hell has no exit door, and souls have no expiration date. Hell has no exit door. There is no back door out of hell, and souls do not expire. We read in John 3.16 that whosoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have what? Everlasting, eternal life. John 14 tells us that the way to everlasting life with the Father is through the way, truth, and life. Jesus, right? But just as Scripture teaches us that... Belief in Jesus leads to everlasting life. A rejection of Jesus leads to everlasting judgment, everlasting torment. He says here, Abraham, in speaking to the rich man, says there's a chasm that is fixed and none can cross from one to the other. In other words, where you are for eternity is where you will be for eternity. There is no getting out. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says it like this, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Not temporary, not quick and ended, but eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now we don't want to hear that. Especially in our day and age where we like to think of God, our culture likes to think of God as this loving, lax grandfather who's just going to say, Oh, it's okay. He's just going to spoil everybody in the end and just let them all in. You know, we read of hell and we grapple with it and we, we, we want to explain it away because we, we think it's, we, it's offensive. We, we, we think well, that's going to make God look unloving. How could a, how could a loving God possibly eternish, or punish, excuse me, punish a soul for eternity? That just doesn't make sense. How could that be loving? And so many, in turn, will come up with their own opinions. They'll, they'll say, well, I just think every, God's going to let everybody into heaven. 
Or someone might say, oh, you know what? I believe all paths lead to heaven. Or maybe they'll say, you know, I think God lets them into hell and then he lets them come into heaven after a while. They kind of purge their sins and then maybe God will let them in. Or they'll believe maybe God just annihilates them. But let me explain why that doesn't work. And let me use this example for you. Think about the game of baseball. Um, Think about home plate, for instance. I, I, I got a picture up here. Does anybody happen to know how wide home plate is? Anybody know? 17 inches. John, I was expecting you're a t-ball coach, man. You should know these things. 17 inches. 17 inches. If you go to the Major League Baseball game and you see a pitcher trying to throw strikes over a plate, it's a 17-inch home plate. Now, what happens if that pitcher can't throw strikes over that plate? Send them to the minors. Send them down to the minors because they don't make the cut. If you were to go down to college ball and you see, the, you see that home plate there, you know how wide that plate is? 17 inches. Go to high school ball, 17 inches. Go all the way down to little league ball, 17 inches. Now, what if those little kids can't throw strikes over that little plate? You know, maybe we should just widen the plate. Let's widen it to two feet. And let's just widen it to three feet. They'll throw more strikes that way, right? Everybody will feel better about themselves, correct? Because they won't have so much failure. Everybody will think they're doing well, but are they really playing the game of baseball the way it was designed? No. They might be playing a game, but it won't be the true game. And so theoretically, we could conform the rules to our own abilities, to our own liking, but in the end, what have we done? We've messed with the game. We've fooled people into thinking they're doing well when really they aren't. And I feel like that's what we do so many times when we hear the doctrine of hell, or really when we hear any doctrine in Scripture we don't like. We think, let's just change the plate. You know, let's just ignore the Bible that, te- that the Bible teaches that hell is real. Let's just ignore that the Bible teaches that it's eternal. Let's just ignore that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's just ignore that the Bible teaches that all have sinned. And let's just ignore that the Bible defines sin clearly. And instead, let's just widen the plate and let's just make everybody feel good about themselves and make everybody think that they're going to be perfectly okay. But at the end of the day, I'm not the umpire. God is. And if I attempt to widen the plate, it doesn't help anybody else. Instead, it just dooms them to a life of ignorance of what God's true standard is and what God's definition of truth is. And it puts them on an endless path to the very place I don't want them to go, and that is hell. And so, yes, the thought of hell ought to make us uneasy. It was meant to make us uncomfortable. But that lack of comfort, that uneasiness, shouldn't make us want to change the rules. It should drive us to want to do something about it. It should make us want to do what this man did. When we come to our third point, this is what I want us to see, and that's that life is unpredictable, so don't miss opportunities. Look in verse 27. We see this guy realizes something, but he realizes it too late, but it's not too late for us. Verse 27, and he said, the rich man, and then I beg you, fathers, to send him to my father's house. He's wanting the rich, the rich man is wanting Lazarus to go to his father's house back from the dead. Verse 28, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. 
But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so this rich man came to realize the reality of hell a little too late. But here in hell, he realizes, he comes to grips with the fact that not only is he sitting in hell, but he has five brothers who are on the way there. And he's thinking to himself, what do I do? What do I do? And so he comes up with this this plan. He says, send someone to them. You can imagine the heartbreak in his voice as he cries out to Abraham. Abraham, I've got five brothers and they're going to be sitting right here next to me in hell. Can you please send Lazarus to them? But how did Abraham respond? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now that sounds very cold. Sounds very uncaring. But in actuality, Abraham is telling us and telling him exactly what we need to understand. And that is that the word of, a God, the word of God is enough. That it is sufficient to bring people to Jesus. The rich man says, hey, we need to show. We need to send somebody back from the dead. We need a miracle here or else no one's going to understand. But Abraham sticks to the point and says, look, the way to God has been declared. And it's not signals in the sky that they need. It's simply the truth of Scripture that points people to Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through Him. And the Bible declares that, and that's all we need. And that's all lost people need, is the knowledge of the truth of Scripture. God did send one back from the dead, and His name was Jesus. And in doing so, he, he affirmed what he had already said. And so we simply need to surrender to that. But the truth is, is that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know that we're going to be here tomorrow. And so that makes two points crystal clear. First, if you're lost, you have no guarantee of tomorrow. And so you better do your business with the Lord today. There's no need to delay coming to Jesus Christ. Because today may be the only day you have. But if you're saved, here's the message we hear here. You have no guarantee of tomorrow either, and neither does your lost friend or neighbor. And so we best not be putting it off. The rich man only wished he had had another day, but he didn't have it. He wished he had had another opportunity to hear Scripture himself, another opportunity to tell his lost brothers, but he didn't. And so he cries out because he says, I don't have time. There's no more chance. Now some might say here today, oh, preacher, I've got time. Quit trying to scare people. But let me tell you this. Give you this illustration. The day was May 7th, 1915. Um, there was a British, British ocean liner by the name of the RMS Lusitania. It was struck by a, a torpedo from a German submarine that day. Panic began to grow in the boat. Obviously, you would expect that to happen. And uh, 
um, as people are beginning to run around, this one passenger calls out to the captain and says, Captain, what are we to do? And the captain replied to that passenger, looking at the boat, he said, Stay right where you are, ma'am. She's going to be all right. She will not sink. The passenger looked back and said, How do you know that, Captain? And he said, I've talked to the engine room. She's going to be all right. She will not sink. That passenger then turned around and began to declare that message to the rest of the boat. And people began to cheer. And and the people that were headed toward the lifeboats turned around and began going back to their normal routines. And they began to say, The pastor, or the the captain said, The boat's not going to sink. Unfortunately, that captain wasn't telling the truth. He had received no message. He had gotten no word. And he told them what they wanted to hear, but it wasn't what they needed to hear because it wasn't long after that that the boat actually did sink. And about 1,200 of the 19 on board died because they had no chance. And so we might tell ourselves over and over again, there's time, there's tomorrow, things aren't sinking. But regardless of what we tell ourselves, the truth is, is that the time, time is of the essence. And because time is of the essence, we best be doing our business with the Lord right here, right now. Would you bow with me? Father God, as we come to this time of invitation, I do pray for each and every soul that is here. God, I pray that if there be any here today who are lost, that they would hear the words of this rich man who was sitting in hell, and it would shock them into reality to realize that they need to do something today about their eternal destiny. Father, I pray that that every person that's within the sound of my voice and has been able to hear this message today, that every single person that's lost today would be convicted and say, I need Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. There is no alternate route. So, Father, I pray that that You would bring souls to You today. And God, I do pray for us who are believers in this room today. I pray that 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 rich man's cry would, would convict our hearts. The time is of the essence. That yes, just as heaven is real and we have confidence in heaven, that hell is real. And that those who go there will remain there for all eternity. And that you have given us the task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, Father, I pray that you would begin to place people on our minds right now who need to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. And that you would give us opportunities this day, this week, share with them how you've changed our lives how you've shown us your love for us and how that you love them as well it's in Christ's name we do pray these things Amen. just stand as we sing for this time of invitation